0: This is Vermont Edition. I'm Steve Zinn, in for Jane Lindholm today. How can playing a game involving cards or dice and moving pieces on a board compete with the more and more realistic and sophisticated technology of video games? Well, that's a logical question if you're unfamiliar with what's going on these days in board games. But there's a whole universe of new board games out there. Some are stellar in scope, ranging across galaxies. Others are more down to earth, and less about places than ideas and problem solving. And not just played by moving pieces on board. Some are tabletop games, others are card games, or involve role-playing, but all involve people playing them together in the same place instead of online. Today on Vermont Edition, we'll talk about this new generation of board games, and we're asking you if you play them. If so, why and what do you play? What's the attraction to board games versus online gaming, or do you do both? Give us a call at one 800 639 Two two one one, or send an email to Vermont Edition at vpr dot net. We've asked Andrew Liptak and Benjamin Higgins to join us today to guide us through this world of board games. Andrew is co-founder of Geek Mountain State, a community blog quote dedicated to promoting all things geek in Vermont. He joins us from our Montpelier studio, and Benjamin Higgins is manager of Quarterstaff Games, a Burlington store where games are sold and where players gather. Thank you both for being here today. Absolutely, thank it's you great to be here. So. Andrew, you know, for those who are unfamiliar with the landscape here, is there a way to describe how the board games we're talking about are different from board games that an older generation might be familiar with, you know, Monopoly and Clue and games like that?
1: Yeah, right now we're in what's described as a sort of um, golden age of board games. And the reason for that is partially because there is an influx of these really high quality games that are coming in from Europe Uh, They're called uh, sort of Euro games or German style games. They tend to be uh, involve a lot more strategy. Well, they downplay uh, luck and conflict. Um, They also the players tend to be in the game to the end rather than being eliminated one by one, as you might have in Monopoly.
0: And just in terms of uh, who the games are appealing to, um, Benjamin, you know, at Quarterstaff, who do you see coming in both to play games and to to buy games?
2: Uh, It's really a just diverse amount. We have players of all ages that come and play with us in a multitude of different uh, gaming genres. With the board games, we generally look at maybe... The 24 to 34 is our primary demographic, but I've even played games with sixty, seven year olds and even a wide amount of games nowadays are being made for the younger crowd, family games and also just children's games, all the way down to ages four and up.
0: How'd you break it down in terms of men versus women?
2: Uh, it's generally a little more favored to the men, although that trend is very much changing. We, uh, at our board game night last night, I did a quick head count of male to female, and it was it was just about fifty percent. So it's really coming around and really being a uh, all inclusive hobby.
0: Andrew, uh, you know, it's I think maybe mystifying to people uh, who have watched the explosion of video games over the last couple of decades and, and seen how uh, sophisticated they've become to uh, get in their heads the idea that people are are. Also, turning to board games, what's the appeal? Would you say of a, of these board games versus video games?
1: Well, I think the biggest appeal is the social aspect, and this is sort of what's appealed to gamers for centuries. Uh, we the first you know board games came around the early eighteen hundreds and grew in popularity because they didn't have any other forms of entertainment, and uh, they didn't couldn't go to the movies, they couldn't go to you know listen to radio mm. or television. Uh, so as you have games. Coming up through the ages, you see it as, a, as a primarily a social activity that you can play with your fam- family or friends. Um, and this is the same with a lot of other games, not just board games but card games because you uh, – unless you're playing solitaire. But um, they're typically cooperative or, or competitive. Um, role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons, you tend to see you know, large groups or uh, playing as a group. And um, that's the same with a lot of these Euro-style games that are coming out now.
0: Yeah, I wonder too whether there's any appeal to the tactile part of it, you know, which you don't get with a video game.
1: Yeah, I think so. Um because you have the, the pieces on the board and you get to actually um uh, the the t- the gameplay is different though. With like a first person shooter or a video game, you're you're sort of you only see from your perspective. With a lot of these newer games, because they're more strategy-based, you see the whole board and you get to sort of use a whole different set of mental skills to try to figure out, you know, how are you going to advance or how are you going to win? Mm
0: -hmm. And again, to get back to that comparison with Monopoly or or Sorry or anything, the the time it takes in which to complete a game, it's it's similar to those old games?
1: I think it depends on who you're playing with and what the games are. Um, I know with Monopoly, with me and my siblings, uh, we would have game sessions where we would play for literally two days straight, um, mainly because we – changed some of the rules, and people took advantage of those rules. Um, with the the more complicated games, they they can take hours to set up, and they can take even longer to play. And so you have to really plan it out. So it it, it then you go down to some of the easier games like Settlers of Guiton. You can play that in, in a much shorter amount of time. It does not take as long to set up. So there's a lot. Of, it varies a lot.
0: Mm-hmm. Benjamin Higgins, who's responsible for creating these games? Are they coming from big companies like Parker Brothers?
2: So at the very core. It's usually just individuals that are designing these games or or a, a collaboration between two or three people. Then once they've got their game set, uh, they've got it in, an, in a place where they think they can shop it around. They then take it to these different publishers, these board gaming uh, distributors. And hopefully they get picked up uh, just because you – Published with one company in a game doesn't necessarily mean that that company will publish your future games if you continue to design. So it really, really is an individual level at the at the base part, but it takes an entire industry to get the games made, tested, produced, and and distributed uh, worldwide at this point.
0: Now, Quarterstaff Games in Burlington has been around for. 30 years, I think you told me. Yeah, it's. You've it's been, you haven't a been long there time. that long. You're not old enough to have been there that <laughs> long, but you've been there seven years, and I just wonder is there an arc you can trace? Is this a sort of a recent surge in popularity of board games?
2: It's really been kind of a slow burn right up until about two years ago, and then the tabletop board gaming market has really exploded. Uh, I was looking at a article that was produced by ICV2, which kind of keeps an eye on uh, the business of of tabletop gaming and everything. And they just released a statement where the US and Canada sales of uh, tabletop board games, your collectible games, card games, role-playing games, basically anything non-digital, just broke uh, a billion dollars, which is a 29% increase over the year before. So it is – ramping up considerably and really, really heading the the cultural zeitgeist, it, it feels.
0: It's not a separate audience that it's appealing to, or is it? Is there a lot of crossover with people who play video games?
2: For a long time, it was separate, but I think it's really starting to, to meld together now. I know several of our regulars, uh, our regular customers, they play video games for a little bit, and then they come in and they socialize and play the board games with, with the group of friends. So it's, it's really a split, and I only see it continuing to meld as technology works its way into board games. That's a, a new trend that has started showing up in the past year or so.
0: So let me just, to, to flesh this out a little bit, again, for people who may not be familiar with what's going on, ask each of you to pick a favorite game, describe it for us, and tell us what's appealing about it. And Andrew Liptak, let's start with you.
1: So one of the ones that I've I've started playing recently is uh, Pandemic, and it's a game where you basically travel around the world trying to stop uh, these diseases from breaking out and killing everybody. Um, it, I've only I've I've played it a couple of times with my, my wife and a couple of friends, and it, we've we've really enjoyed it just because it there's a cooperative nature to it. It's not a it's not a competitive game where you're trying to you know beat everybody else, um, but it is a um, it's also you know, you also have to do your own thing and and make your own decisions. Um, It's pretty fast and it was very fairly easy to pick up. So that's one reason why we really enjoyed Mm
0: -hmm. it. So is there a winner and loser in the end?
1: Um, It's been a little while since I've played it. But yeah, I think if you Mm -hmm. you win, if you if you're able to vanquish all of the diseases and and if you lose, if you get a certain threshold.
0: (laughs) Is it kind of a card based game? How does the board work?
1: There's, uh, so you have, you have a regular board. It has the, the, planet, uh, the planet Earth and you have all the major cities and you have connecting lines that you go from each one. So you get to move your, your, your little guy from point to point as you're trying to, to do different actions around there. There are cards you draw and um, things like that.
0: And if if you fail, do you succumb to one of the diseases?
1: Uh, The whole
2: planet succumbs to
1: one of the diseases. (laughs) The
0: stakes are much larger. Yeah. Okay, that's that's pandemic. And uh, Benjamin Higgins, what about you?
2: Sure. Uh, I mean, I'm playing a ton of games at any given point, and I've got a huge huge list of games I could put as a a favorite. Uh, Probably the one that sticks in my head right now is Roll for the Galaxy. It is a... Dice-based game of a card game that came out uh, quite a while ago. And this is a recent release, this dice version. Mm-hmm. It is an engine-building game where by using different dice, and these are all custom dice. They don't have the one to six pips that a lot of people are familiar with on dice. They have different symbols, and the symbols mean other things in the games. And by rolling these dice and allocating them to different parts of your your board, your player board, you can then take different actions which will give you new powers, new dice gain you victory points, and you are in a, in a race against the other players to establish your galactic dominance, mm-hmm. get a, a certain amount of victory points that will hopefully put you over all the other players' efforts yeah. at the end of the game.
0: You know, from both your descriptions, what I gather is there's a complexity to these games that maybe didn't exist in a lot of the old board games.
1: For sure. Yeah. Sometimes. I mean it also depends on the type of board game you're talking about. There's there's a couple of games that I uh, – before I came over here, I, I dug out. Um, I have one from 1983 called Bull Run and another one called Squad Leader from 1977 and these are called bookcase games and they are incredibly complicated. These were aimed at mm-hmm. the really hardcore war, war gamers. You basically set up the entire like western front of World War II and you basically control little squads of people as, they, as you try to um, you know uh, beat the other team. So th- there's, there's some very complicated games out there that are uh, – and um, and there's also some very simple – ones yeah. that are a lot simpler.
0: We're talking today about the new generation of board games and new generation of players, how they're finding social connections and intellectual challenge in the new games. If you have questions about them or comments, 1-800-639-2211. You can also post your comments at the Vermont Edition page at vpr.net or on Facebook. Let's go to the phones and take a call from Kenneth in Pulteney. Hi, Kenneth.
3: Hello. Thanks for taking my call. And and what a pleasant surprise to to hear this topic as I came home for lunch. I teach math at Green Mountain College, and I teach a class that uses board games instead of textbooks to teach math concepts. We use Pandemic, uh, Settlers of Catan, uh, similar games, and I, I think the teaching potential of these games is just tremendous. Uh, the students come in, and, and before they know what hit them, they're doing some pretty deep mathematical thinking, creating new concepts, discovering old concepts that they never had heard about before, like network theory, and and then getting to use them to uh, increase their, their proficiency at the games. And then what's really fun is, is it turns out that the systems that are in these games are in the real world. And and so then the concepts we've been developing, they can turn around and apply to, to real problems like how economies develop or, or fail to develop, um, how conflicts develop, things like arms races. Uh, so I just wanted to... to throw that out there and hear what your guests might have to say about that potential.
0: Thank you, Kenneth. And and I think uh, his point about them having some sort of basis in the real world gets to uh, comments both Andrew uh, uh, and Benjamin have made, whereas, you know, how many of us are going to have to solve a murder by figuring out whether uh, Professor Plum was hit with a candlestick? Um, Some of the games that you've mentioned really do spark our thoughts about real conditions in the world. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. With the uh, – regards to the educational aspect of the games, absolutely. Uh, Statistics, probability, uh, those come into play, resource allocation, planning, all these different concepts which seem very abstract when you just talk about them as board game mechanics can actually find their way into those real-life situations when you're trying to figure out well okay i've got this amount of money to spend on this month you know there's budgeting that happens in games i know we all deal with budgets in our in our real life and being able to use the skills we learn from our real life in our board games and our board game skills in our real life is is a great way to see just how deep the the hobby can be
0: Uh, Dan posted this comment. Uh, He writes that for the price of a nice dinner, you can get a box full of potential with a board game. You can find yourself battling your friends for supremacy while terraforming the land, working together to stop a mass outbreak of a deadly disease, which we've heard about, cultivating a full field of chili peppers, or creating a power network across the German countryside. Dan says the true beauty of the board game hobby is how it brings people together, from friends and family to complete strangers. Board games prove to be a catalyst List for things that are sometimes lacking in today's society, conversation and face-to-face interaction. And Dan uh, puts in a plug for himself here. He says he started his own website and podcast about board games at boardeveryday.com. Again, our number here at Vermont Edition, one 800 639 2, 2, 1, 1. Andrew Liptek, uh, Green Mountain State is, as we mentioned at the earlier uh, part of the program, a blog about all things geek, right? Um, yeah,
1: it's a, it's a little side project that I started a couple of years yeah, ago. Yeah,
0: so how much is board gaming uh, a part of Green Mountain State – Geek Mountain State, sorry.
1: Um, we, I used to do a, a, a list every morning um, – and we would basically just track all the the various sort of geek events that were happening throughout the state. So it'd be like you know science talks or or screenings of films. And the one that we would get the most of was board games, and they happened everywhere across the state. So um, like Ben's uh, Quarterstaff Games is a, is a powerhouse when it comes to the, their programming. There's also uh, Braps Magic up in Burlington. There is uh, board. Ga- There's gaming stores in um, Randolph in Saint Albans. Bennington um, I believe there's there's one in st. Albans and Middlebury so there's there's gaming stores all over the place and a lot of these stores will also host uh, gaming sessions at uh, various points of night they'll do, they'll do like um, Monday night Magic or they'll do like a board game night or uh, ro- they'll open their space up for role-playing games um, so you see this really vibrant community um, pop coming together and, and one of the, bi- the big organizations that sort of supports this is uh, the Green Mountain gamers which run a couple of um, Uh, I believe they run two sort of, not really conventions, but they like gaming days uh, throughout the year. Um, There's also a couple of uh, conventions like Vermont Comic Con that's coming up, which I believe has a gaming room. Um, And there's also Carnage, which is coming up later this fall. Yeah,
0: we'll be talking about Green Mountain Gamers uh, momentarily. Let's go back to the phones. Take a call from Rob in St. Albans. Rob, welcome.
4: Hi. Yes. So Rob here. My. uh my favorite, uh, game that I got, uh, hooked on to in the past year is, uh, I call it Corkle. Um, I think it's maybe actually pronounced Corkle, but, uh, this is, a uh, great game for someone like me and the whole family really got onto it, like extended family, all cousins and everybody all across the country. They all got copies now. And, uh, it's, uh, it's kind of like Scrabble, <laughs> but, uh, with colors and shapes. So it's good, really good if you can't spell and uh I just really uh you know really fell in love with it it's one of those ones where it's uh you know learning curve is easy and uh it's uh you know that there's that phenomenon in board games sometimes where sometimes the, the first time you play it or the, the newbies can get we're lucky and you know and they end up winning and and so I really really
2: really enjoyed it.
0: Thanks a lot for the call, Rob. You were nodding your head, Benjamin, when he was talking about Corkle.
2: Yeah, it, it's it's one of those games that, as he said, it's very accessible. It's very easy to learn, but there is a depth of strategy there. And that's really been really been a hallmark and I think a perfect way that you can sum up why this resurgence of board games has mm-hmm. happened. A lot of these games are super simple, and yet there is a depth to it. So you're not like, okay, I played it twice. I'm done. It's no. I've played it twice, and I've just scratched the surface on what this game can be.
0: It sounds like what makes the difference too is the, st- or as much a difference is the strategy you take. Whereas in older games, it was all largely about the roll of the dice yeah. or the draw of the cards.
2: Yeah, with 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 Monopoly. Uh, being, you know, one of the big poster children for a type of game called a roll and move. Literally, that's what the game was. You would roll the dice, move your pawn, and then maybe follow some other game rules to that. Uh, And when you look at one of the big classics we all grew up with, Candyland, it's not really a game because you're just drawing a card and moving to that space. It's completely random on really who wins or loses.
0: Now we're going to hear from all the Candyland fans. (laughs) We're talking about games today, not Candyland or the virtual online kind, but games like old-fashioned board games that are anything but old-fashioned in their themes and appeal. They run the gamut from fantasy to historical, and their appeal has been growing as evidenced by the increasing number of events for people who enjoy board and tabletop games. If you know what we're talking about and have some comments to offer, or if you're unfamiliar with the new generation of games and have some questions, we welcome your call at one 800 639 2211 and in just a moment we'll talk to two men who have designed and published their own game in Vermont this is Vermont edition I'm Steve Zend, and this is Vermont Edition. What goes around comes around, and just like vinyl records, board games are back, but they are very different, as we've been discussing. We're discovering how and why they've come back with the help of Andrew Liptak, co-founder of the website Geek Mountain State, and Benjamin Higgins, who's manager of Quarterstaff Games, a game store in Burlington. If you've got questions or comments about today's new generation of board games, one 800 639-2211 Six three nine two two one one is our number or feel free to post a comment at vpr.net and for a few minutes we want to bring two more people into the conversation to talk about how these games are designed and how they're being played. Uh, joining us now is Matt Golick, co-creator of Penny Press and Robert dyckman uh, co-creator of Penny Press as well and also chairman of Green Mountain Gamers. Thank you both for joining us.
5: Thank
0: you for having us. So both of you developed the board game Penny Press, which involves, from my understanding, running competing newspapers during the heyday of no-holds-barred yellow journalism. You got Uh, it. All right. Describe what the challenge is if uh, we're playing Penny Press.
4: Well, in Penny Press, again, you, you play one of those news barons in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and you send out your reporters into the city, you try to capture the best stories, and then when the time is right, you bring them back and puzzle them to puzzle those little story pieces together, kind of Tetris-like, on the front page of your newspaper. You do that a few times, you score points, and uh, whoever scores the most points is uh, the winner of Penny Press.
0: And how long does it take for all that to unfold?
5: Uh, It takes about 45 minutes to play a game of panic press, and that includes uh, uh, learning it for the first time.
0: And, you know, what's interesting to get back to a point that was made earlier in the program, what keeps it different and interesting from one game to the next?
5: So the setup for every game of Penny Press is different. We have some cards we call headline cards, and they will bring out stories onto the board. These are the Tetris pieces that, that you puzzle together on your front page. So the shapes and what's available is different every single time you play it. Uh, and since you're competing with the other players on the table for what's available, uh, that, that is really the appeal of, of the changing uh, game every single
0: time so the two of you just a two-person show really when it comes to developing this game uh you know it strikes me there's several steps you had to come up with the idea you had to develop it you had to somehow get it out there market and distribute it which which was the hardest or the highest hurdle to clear in that whole process uh matt
4: Well, that's kind of a tough question because there's always the new hurdles with this being our first game. We were learning a lot as we went. We were kind of lucky. We won a a design contest uh, called the Tabletop Deathmatch, sponsored by a sort of uh, grown-up card game called Cards Against Humanity. So we were one of 500 entrants who went and sort of pitched our game to uh, a panel of judges. And we were very fortunate to be one of the two winners. They couldn't decide at the end, so they, they picked two games. So that helped us out a lot with publicity. It uh, led us to a publisher, Osmotic Games, an outfit out of Boston. And they helped uh, give us a lot of good guidance. And uh, But uh, certainly publicity is is uh, one of the biggest challenges, uh, you know, one of the... the Good things about the board game resurgence is there's lots of people interested in board games. One of the downside is there's lots of games out there, <laughs> so you really have to
5: make your game good for it to stand out.
0: Are you working on uh, another game now?
5: We are. We uh, we have a little game that we call the West Monster Kennel Club, in which players uh, compete to to get a kennel of monsters in front of them, and then bring them to these monster shows that are very much like the dog shows, and and try and show them up against one another. And uh, the little appeal that we have in there and the little wrinkle in the gameplay is that as you take new monsters into your kennel, you have to bid on them, and and they uh, will try to establish dominance amongst one another, and so new monsters may take already existing monsters out of your kennel. So you've got to be very careful with what you select.
0: Well, best of luck with that. Thank you. Uh, Robert, you're also involved in Green Mountain Gamers, which organizes events where people get together and play board games. Obviously, they're playing them in their kitchens and dining rooms and such. But uh, there are a lot of events, as have been mentioned, going around, uh, you know, around the state taking place. What are you seeing for attendance at these events? How frequently do they occur?
5: So we organize an event every season, so we have a spring, summer, uh, winter and fall event. Uh, we usually have between 30 and 40 people attending an event uh, uh, throughout the day because we run from 10 o'clock in the morning to 10 o'clock at night, so these are these are all-day events. And then we have one really big event that we run in Fairleigh Vermont in, at the Lake Moray Resort. Every spring, uh, uh, April 8, 2017 is the next one. And uh, that runs from 9 o'clock until uh, uh, midnight. And uh, we'll see in attendance there, uh, last year we saw uh, over 130 people. So mm-hmm. that's well attended.
0: Well, both of you, thanks for talking with us today.
5: Oh yeah, thanks for
0: having us Matt Golick and Robert uh, Dyke-Mondelkis both uh, co-creators of Penny Press and uh, Robert is also with Green Mountain Gamers this is Vermont Edition on VPR and today we're talking about the new generation of board games uh, in our studios Andrew uh, Liptak co-founder of Geek Mountain State and Benjamin Higgins, manager of Quarterstaff Games our number 1-800-639-2211 let's talk with Chris in Boston Chris, you with us? Um, Hi, yeah. Hi, go ahead.
6: Um, I'm just wrapping up about a nine-month design and production of my own game. It's based off of, uh, inspired by the 18th, the golden age of sailing of the 18th century. And it's a really good game. I feel like I've got good things going, and I'm wondering what your guests would say about the next step as far as getting
2: it to a
0: producer
4: or self-publishing.
0: All right, might be a question for Benjamin Higgins, Chris.
2: Uh, So sure, yeah. If you feel like you've got the game to a point where it's polished enough that you want to start shopping it around, I would do exactly that. Contact a few of these board game publishers. I know that a lot of the – I want to say smaller publishers are always looking at submissions. Uh, Usually the best way to get in touch with them is to email them, say, hey, I've got this game. Would you be interested in taking a look at it? Uh, And then just – Keep pounding down doors Uh, if you get frustrated because as uh, as our guest from the Green Mountain Gamers said, there are a ton of games out there now. And so you are definitely going to be competing in a very large pool of people trying to get their different ideas and everything put out there. But just keep at it. If you decide you want to go the self-published route, Kickstarter, Indiegogo, these are platforms online where you can sell your product to a large, large base of people that are looking at it and find people that want to put money towards helping you develop and produce and then distribute these games.
0: Thanks, Chris. What's, what's the name of your game, by the way?
6: Uh, the name of the game is called To Windward the Lunar Islands, and uh, we're producing it under the name Tower Street Games, so towerstgames.com if you don't mind.
0: <laughs> All right, good luck. Thank you. Here's Ed in Pulteney. Hi, Ed. Welcome to the program.
6: Hi, thanks for letting me on. What um, I to make was that one of the draws for tabletop gaming, and I see this—I play every Wednesday at the shop at Blockman Games in Rutland. I play at the Sherburne Library; they have a lending library. I've actually played with Ken Mulder, one of the other callers. Is it really brings out that sense of just open play and interaction that we all had when we were kids? I mean, the, the first time you ever made friends in kindergarten was sitting around a table playing with blocks or playing something for a goal that you decide on. And that is what modern board games are allowing us to do. That's something you don't get online. You don't get that face-to-face interaction. One of the things I find at gaming tables is it doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter who you're going to vote for. We're all working toward the same goal, same goal, and we're all having a good time. You don't necessarily see that online. It's one of the things that really keeps me coming back.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Ed, for the call. Here's uh, something Jeremy posted. Uh, Benjamin, this is probably directed at you. One major innovation in gaming has been the rise of Euro games, which Andrew mentioned at the beginning, often involving mechanics where all players progress and accumulate points and uh, doesn't depend on actively diminishing other players' positions. These are much friendlier games, Jeremy writes, with less potential for hurt feelings, ganging up on a single player, or king-making. He says his current favorite game is Dominion with all the expansions. But he has a question. He says there's an untold story you should ask game shop owners like Mr. Higgins. How do they stay in business? It's not from us. They make the vast majority of their money from one single game, Magic the Gathering.
2: (laughs) Yeah, uh... The collectible uh game markets, uh really flagshipped by Magic of the Gathering, which has been around uh for about twenty-three years at this point. Uh yeah, it was published in nineteen ninety-three originally. Uh it pushes these game stores to, to really that's where they get their operating capita. Uh the, the nice thing is that is where previously you may have stores that relied on, you know, seventy, eighty percent, upwards of ninety percent of their their revenue from these collectible games, it's really starting to come down to almost an even parity. Uh, as I mentioned, the the ICV two study uh, that put uh, board gaming sales in North America at uh, over one billion. Only about 60% of that was from collectible game markets at this point, uh, which it's definitely – it's stabilizing. The The board game market is becoming a much bigger factor in the overall thing. Without the collectible games, yeah, we probably wouldn't have made it to this point where we can start looking at, at board games as being a self-sustaining item.
0: Andrew LipTech, have you uh, played games at some, some of these events we've uh, been talking about?
1: Not a whole lot. Most uh-huh. most of my gaming has come with uh, with friends and that uh, people we have over to our house, or if we go over to a friend's house, um, we've done a whole bunch of different um, a whole, a whole di- bunch of different types of games. Yeah. Uh, but I, I don't usually get out, make it out to the to the game stores just because of uh, distance for me.
0: Uh, yeah. I
1: live in Barry, and it's kind of a hall to go up to yeah. uh, Burlington.
0: And there are events around the state, as as we've mm-hmm. discussed. Any in central Vermont you're familiar with?
1: Um, there's uh, – let's see, the Book Garden over in uh, – here in Montpelier is, has uh, – they run a uh, regular Magic the Gathering game um, and there was – there's a couple of groups yeah. that did some other games. I know mm-hmm. uh, public libraries tend to do a lot of gaming as well. The Aldrich Library in Barry does some stuff, especially with kids.
0: Okay. So um, check with your local library. Yep. You know, one of the things that occurred to me, Benjamin, as we wind up was uh, sometimes it can be uh, – difficult for a neophyte. Somebody wants to get into it, to go to an event or to a place like Quarterstaff Games to check it out. Uh, because you feel like everybody there is more experienced, they're knowledgeable, it won't be welcoming. Any advice for the newcomers?
2: Uh, Just get out there and come visit us. We are a very welcoming community, even though there's these stereotypes that kind of say we don't shower, whatever, all the stuff. It's absolutely (laughs) not true. It's really becoming this great, inclusive community now, where we're always welcome to bring new people in. Uh, Look online for meetups, uh, especially Uh, Board Game Nights at your libraries, your local game stores, Uh, they're all going to be extremely welcoming to new people and a lot of these will also Mm. have beginner-friendly things where they'll teach demos and and actually learn – Learn with you as you experience this community.
0: And uh, as someone mentioned, there are other game stores in addition to uh, quarterstaff around Vermont. Uh, uh, Caller mentions Dark Mountain Games in Springfield is one of them.
2: Yeah, uh, they're popping up everywhere nowadays, which really, again, speaks to the – the massive popularity that we're experiencing with these board games. Probably you are within 20, 30 minutes of any store uh, anywhere in Vermont. All right.
0: Well, thank you both for guiding us through this subject today. Appreciate it. Andrew Liptak, co-founder of Geek Mountain State, and Benjamin Higgins, manager of Quarterstaff Games, thanks for being with us.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Coming up, singer-songwriter Gregory Douglas, who's long been part of the Vermont music scene but is based in California now. He performed recently as part of our Live from the Fort series, so we'll hear from him next on Vermont Edition. This is Vermont Edition. I'm Steve Zandon for Jane Lindholm. Singer-songwriter Gregory Douglas has been a fixture in the Vermont music scene since 1999, until he decided a few years ago to head west to Los Angeles. He recently returned to Vermont and recorded some of his latest compositions for VPR's Live from the Fort series, along with cellist Monique Citro. Douglas pointed out that it's always been difficult to precisely explain his style of music.
7: I think there's definitely a merge between the more experimental, perhaps even progressive rock aspects and more soulful vocals. So sometimes I'll say Tori Amos meets Adele, you know, or (laughs) something, you know, Rufus Wainwright meets Sam Smith or something, you know, but it's really hard to pigeonhole genre wise. Somebody said to me at one show, it's heart music, just music that really speaks to the heart. And I, I like that.
8: I enough of this I cannot have it Enough of this Talking about it The false memories They're only photographs They're to remind me That it was murder I couldn't help it and- You're
7: this new album is is a huge production. I mean, it's it's a much bigger album sonically, and and there are definitely some songs that are are more. Heavy on the electric guitars, but just more orchestrated and at times sweeping, and just like it's just a, a really big album. It's one of my favorite things about being a musician, for sure, is the writing. I, I just always have a flood of ideas, and it's it's never the opposite. I, I rarely ever have writer's block. You know, it's I have too many ideas usually, and I'm I'm trying to focus on the ones that really resonate the most to, you know, it's more of a challenge for me to actually focus and finish because I'm just constantly like, oh, I'm just hearing that or that could be cool. But once once I really do focus, I I find that the albums usually consist of, I would say maybe 80% of the songs on every album come from a concentrated period of time where, where you're just, where I'm just in the zone and you know, those are the ideas that tend to really stand out for me and, and feel like they're worth focusing on.
8: Saturday, I'm a humble squire of the air.
7: I was born and raised in Hyde Park, Morristown area, and I really got my start here in Burlington. It's been such a supportive community ever since I graduated high school in 99. I've just been, I moved to Burlington and I, I've been, you know, doing it independently ever since. And I just, I had so much support here initially that it really helped me to develop com- the confidence to to take it all on myself and, and really keep the engine running. So I haven't really looked back since. You know, I, I decided to make the move to Los Angeles about a year and a half ago because it is something that I had been thinking about for many years. Just paying attention to how things are changing so quickly in the music industry and in so many different industries actually. Uh, the type of opportunities that really exist out there that don't exist really anywhere else. I've also gotten older and, and have... I'm not quite as motivated as I was in my 20s to just be a total road warrior. So I'm trying to be a little bit more mindful about the decisions that I'm making. And and the move felt really more like an investment in my future, career-wise. And so I'm still very much in that transitional point. But it it has brought a lot of really good people to the table and really interesting opportunities to the table that I, I... no, hands down, would only happen if if I were there, you know. So it's it's been so far so good, but I'll be interested to see how the next you know year or two goes.
8: Free on, where do I begin? Free falling till the birds to sing. I found you. Proud of anguish is standing on a solid ground. It's so true like you're holding on to something like you're been in love with me. Better now, let's take a look around it. And much better now is if I find some house. I found you like a riddle answered over the divine brigade. It's so true, like you hold holding on, and just so. with me for a century
0: That's Gregory Douglas along with cellist Monique Citro performing in order, Enough With This, My Hero, The Enemy, and Hang Around. You can find a link to Live from the Fort on the webpage for today's program. Our school is back in session and in this week's installment we're going to learn an old skill in the digital age building and repairing clocks is increasingly lost art but there are still those who retain a fascination with the beauty and complexity of keeping a timepiece running smoothly so today we learn what keeps your clock ticking
9: I'm Pat Boyden. Green Mountain Clock Shop's my business. Pat Boyden's my professional name. My given name is Norman Joshua Boyden III, and I was born on St. Patrick's Day, so my dad nicknamed me Pat. I'm the clockmaker of the of Green Mountain Clock Shop. When someone brings a clock to us, uh, we talk to them and tell them what the possibilities are and what we're likely to do, and then once we get approval or get an idea of what's going on, I'll take the clock downstairs, and I'll take the movement out of the cabinet, and I'll figure out what's going on. The way you check out a clock is you decide what the clock was supposed to do, what was it designed to do, and then you look at it and you say, now, why doesn't it do that? And why doesn't it do that is what I've got to fix. Every clock is different, so you have to look at it and check the outside, check the inside, see what it is. I've done this a few times, so I have a pretty good sense of how things should be when I start, but you need to observe carefully the alignment and the synchronization of parts. And you have to have some kind of memory of how they should go back together. I usually can look at them and figure it out. So I don't normally draw my movements anymore, but I used to. So anything that'll help you. And what I try to do now is if I need a part, I try to find one and then I make it rather than take it from an existing movement. Because if I take it from the existing movement, it's gone. And next time if I need it, it isn't there to look at. So I use it as a model and I make a lot of parts. The biggest challenge I have from home do-it-yourself or fixers probably starts with WD-40. That's tough. Um, It's messy. It's hard to get rid of. There's just a fascination of seeing things run well, Uh, seeing integrated parts function the way they're supposed to. Everyone has got a little special part to it or a little special thing that that makes it unique. I learned by using my hands and doing it. A physicist could run circles around me as to the the ability of time, but if he's asked to fix his clock, I can do it a whole lot faster than he can. (laughs) Basically, pay attention to your clock. Um, If it needs to be wound once a week, go ahead and do it. You should run the clock, not the clock you. So have fun with it. Enjoy it. Think of it as an enjoyment And when it doesn't work well, if you want some help, that's what we do.
0: in of Green Mountain Clock Shop in Williston, VPR Classical's Carrie Anderson produced that piece. And that's it for today. Tomorrow, we're going to talk about financial literacy and if we need more financial education. Vermont Edition is produced by Rick and Gary, Sam Gale Rosen, and Meg Malone. With production assistance from Haley Labonte Davey, Liam Connors directed the program. Our executive producer is Patty Daniels. I'm Steve Zend. Thanks for listening.